It was on a dreary night of November that I beheld the accomplishment of my toils. With an anxiety that almost amounted to agony, I collected the instruments of life around me that I might infuse a spark of being into a lifeless thing that lay at my feet. It was already one in the morning, the rain pattered dismally against the panes, and my candle was nearly burnt out, when, by the glimmer of the half-extinguished light, I saw the dull yellow eye of the creature open. It breathed hard, and a convulsive motion agitated its limbs. How can I describe my emotions at this catastrophe? Or how delineate the wretch whom with such infinite pains and care I had endeavored to form? out there. Welcome back. I'm Max and this is my co-host Rock. We'll be your guides today as we peruse the dusty tomes and search the temple attics for secrets on nightmares and daydreams. Yes, yes, y'all. Welcome. So Max and I are going to discuss and debate our way through all things paranormal, legendary, and monstrous. And of course, everyone's favorite, fun. Fun, yes, absolutely. But you know what's not fun, Rock? No, my man. What's that? A magically or artificially created person endowed with superhuman strength who inevitably runs amok and wreaks havoc. Well, it's at least super inconvenient. That's putting it mildly. The funny thing is that usually the golem is created to make things easier and more convenient for the people it serves. True, but let's go back to the beginning for a minute. I think we're getting ahead of ourselves. That doesn't sound like us. Not at all. We're always firmly on task. But in this case, let's just take a step back. Tell us, what is a golem in the first place? Ah, yes. So the golem is a creature very specific to Jewish folklore, a human-shaped being created from clay or mud by a rabbi. Typically, it's endowed with life by the power of scripture or a particular word that's inscribed on its forehead. Often the legends say the word emet, which means truth in Hebrew, is used. But sometimes verses from the Torah, the Hebrew Bible, are used. So not a precious magic ring, then? You're thinking of golem from Lord of the Rings. You sure there's no relation? (laughs) Don't make me come over there. Quit playing. Okay, so the word golem or golem, that's a Hebrew word, correct? Yeah, it's a word that appears actually in the Hebrew Bible in Psalms uh, with the meaning of unformed material or something like that. But in modern Hebrew, I think it means dumb or in any case is kind of an insult. Probably from the legend of the golem itself, basically an unthinking brute who's built for service. I think so, yeah. So the lead-in was from Mary Shelley's novel Frankenstein, written in 1818. I suppose that's what you would call modern. Yeah, Max? Don't be such a smart aleck. But look, (laughs) it's, it's not historically modern in the everyday colloquial way the term is used. But there's no question that Mary Shelley's novel presaged the modern era of science fiction and fantasy. All right, all right. I'll grant you that. I mean, where would Boris Karloff have been without her? Well, he'd have died a penniless beggar, no doubt, would have had to resort to working a nine-to-five office job or something. That's the worst fate there is. Now, that would have been the real nightmare scenario. Indeed. We should do an episode on that. Might be too scary for our listeners. In fact, this whole conversation has given me chills. So let's get back on track here. Are we not on track? I can't tell anymore. We're not, and we hardly ever are. (laughs) Okay. 
Well, shall we tell a real, more traditional golem story? Let's do it. Chelm in eastern Poland was home to Rabbi Elijah during the 16th century. The rabbi was a man of much wisdom. In his hours of prayer, his soul seemed to shift out of his body, reaching the heavenly kingdom. Upon his soul's return to the earthly plains, he healed the sick with his prayers. Thus, after many healing miracles, the people called him a Baal Shem, meaning the master who healed with prayers. His name spread beyond many borders, yet it was for a different reason. In the year, not exactly known, but known for a scorching summer, the rabbi spent a lot of hours in his attic. The people assumed he was hiding from the sun. One day, the rabbi said to his beetle, I need you to carry buckets of clay and water to the attic. After a short pause, he added, Why don't you leave it in front of the door of the attic? I'll handle it from there. His assistant carried a bucket of clay followed by a bucket of water. He's done so many rounds until he lost count and was too tired to carry even an empty bucket anymore. When he sat down at the top of the stairs to catch his breath, his curiosity made him peep through the keyhole, trying to find out what the rabbi was doing. But it was dark. Nothing appeared on the other side. What the beetle didn't know was that the rabbi, knowing him well and his curiosity, covered the keyhole with thick parchment of sheepskin. In the following days, the beetle couldn't keep his tongue at rest. Instead, he spread a rumor that the rabbi was up to something. The people, carrying on their everyday duties in their dull lives, didn't mind some distraction. On the third day, the people started gathering in front of Rabbi Elijah's house, as if waiting for something. But nothing happened, day after day, until the seventh day, when the rabbi opened the door of his house. A big giant appeared behind him. His body seemed to be made of clay, and his features were rather sharp, not quite resembling human. As the rabbi stepped aside to let the full, clear view of the clay figure, he explained, This is the golem, which meant a formless mass. On his forehead was a piece of parchment with one word written, Emet, meaning truth. With this word, the rabbi put life into the golem. He is here to help us with our chores, hopefully to make our lives easier and safer. Upon the last word, the rabbi choked a bit as every day he thought of his oppressed people spread out throughout the world, having a safe place to live and practice their religion. The people were very pleased with Rabbi Elijah's creation. Quickly, they saw the strength of the golem and his efficiency in performing tasks. Nevertheless, a new problem appeared. The golem was a man's creation, not God's. Therefore, he lacked the gifts of reason and speech. He carried out the task he was asked to do without thinking. One day, the preoccupied rabbi said to the golem, There's no water at home. I need you to fetch it from the well. The golem, unable to think, fetched one bucket after another, pouring it through the kitchen window onto the floor. When the rabbi came home from synagogue, he found his furniture floating inside the house, resembling ships drifting in the ocean. Another time, a mother with a child clinging to her leg used her last piece of wood to make food. Upon seeing Golem, she asked, Can you get me some wood? The Golem stood still, not understanding what to do. Frustrated, 
The woman pointed to the forest and said, I need you to go there and chop some wood. The golem left. After a few hours, the first sun rays setting down on the ground, the woman ran to the rabbi and explained the situation. Don't worry, I'll find the golem. With those words, the rabbi headed toward the forest. As soon as he entered the edge of what was once the forest, the rabbi froze, dumbfounded. There was no more forest. All the trees were chopped down. Now the stakes of cut down trees created a grove. The rabbi brought the golem back home and prayed vigorously for a sign from above as he was not sure what to do with the golem. The following morning, upon wakening, the rabbi knew what to do. He waited until evening when the golem was asleep and quietly removed the parchment from the golem's forehead. As the word Emmet, giving life, was removed from his forehead, the formed body of clay turned into a shapeless mass. There was no more golem. In the following centuries, many rabbis tried to create a golem, hoping for a better result. But it was always the same outcome. The mindless body of clay, not being God's creation, only brought more distress than help. Okay, so I was a little surprised by the story that you read. How so? But to be honest, I really expected the Prague Golem to be the story that you might have gone with. Actually, that was my original intention, but I discovered something kind of surprising during the research of the subject, which is that the Prague Golem seems to have been a 19th century fabrication, a kind of combining of multiple legends to form one legend that basically we're all familiar with. But why choose Prague? Especially if Helm was a center for Jewish learning and whatnot. Prague was actually also a great center of Jewish learning and life. Jews had been in Bohemia and Prague itself for at least a thousand years. More importantly, I think, the reason that the legend was affixed to Prague was because of the Rabbi Loh, a man renowned from the 16th century. He's one of the most important Talmudic scholars and mystics in history and became known simply as the Maharal, which I think just means something like the teacher. So the 19th century people who made up the legend of the Golub of Prague just kind of attached it to this guy? Okay, I wouldn't necessarily say they just made it up, but they took elements of existing stories and coalesced them into this narrative that we're all now familiar with, but yeah. Yeah, so what you're saying is that they made it up. <laughs> I mean, okay, <laughs> basically, but I mean, it's, it's not literally historical. Hey man, I'm all for a good story. I love making up stuff. <laughs> But it could just be because Sarah Connors defeated the Maharal and prevented him from creating that first golem, you know? I feel you. Like, she was always a woman on a mission. It's kind of like a Terminator thing, isn't it? Humans made beings that get out of our control and usurp our place in the great chain of being. Hello, Skynet. Exactly. I mean, I'm not a great subscriber to the great chain of being concept, but yeah. I think this legend has definite corollaries in cultures all around the world and in all times. The idea that playing God will get humans in trouble. Exactly. We shouldn't be trying to imitate the creations of God, especially the ultimate creation of sentient beings. Well, you're right. And this idea does cross many cultures and times, which kind of reminds me of something else from the Helm Gollum story that struck me as I was listening. Do tell. They told the Gollum to fetch water buckets, and it filled the house with water. Reminds me of a certain mouse sorcerer. Well, more of an apprentice, but yes. <laughs> so when I first read the story, that caught my attention as well. And I found it really exciting because it actually goes all the way back. Well, to... Let me guess. Go ahead, guess. This is a classics thing, I'm, I'm assuming. So Greece? Okay, so close enough. 
It was written in Greek anyway, but I'm talking about a story by Lucian of Samosata in what is now Turkey. But this story was the origin of that particular story, The Sorcerer's Apprentice, which is now included in the classic Disney canon. Lucian of Samosata, that's my boy. Okay, so perhaps you should tell us a story. I'd love to, Rock. When I was a young man, I passed some time in Egypt. My father having sent me to that country for my education, I took it into my head to sail up the Nile to Coptus and then pay visit to the statue of Memnon and hear the curious sounds that proceed from it at sunrise. In this respect, I was more fortunate than most people who hear nothing but an indistinct voice. Memnon actually opened his lips and delivered me an oracle in seven hexameters. It is foreign to my present purpose, or I would quote you the very lines. Well, now, one of my fellow passengers on the way up was a scribe of Memphis, an extraordinarily able man, first in all lore of the Egyptians. He was said to have passed 23 years of his life underground in the tomb studying occult sciences under the instruction of Isis herself. You must mean the divine Pancrates, my teacher, exclaimed Aragnatus. Tall, clean-shaven, snub-nosed, protruding lips, rather thin in the legs, dresses entirely in linen, has a thoughtful expression, and speaks Greek with a slight accent? Yes, I said. It was Pancrates himself. I knew nothing about him at first, but whenever we anchored, I used to see him doing the most marvelous things. For instance, he would actually ride on crocodiles' backs and swim among the brutes, and they would fawn upon him and wag their tails. And then I realized he was no common man. I made some advances, and by imperceptible degrees, came to be on quite a friendly footing with him, and was admitted to a share in his mysterious arts. The end of it was that he prevailed on me to leave all my servants behind in Memphis and accompany him alone, assuring me that we should not want for attendance. This plan we accordingly followed from that time onwards. Whenever we came to an inn, he used to take up the bar of the door, or a broom, or perhaps a pestle, dress it up in clothes, and utter a certain incantation, whereupon the thing would begin to walk about, so that every one took it for a man. It would go off and draw water, buy and cook provisions, and make itself generally useful. When we had no further occasion for its services, there was another incantation, after which the broom was a broom once more, or the pestle a pestle. I could never get him to teach me this incantation, though it was not for want of trying. Open as he was about everything else, he guarded this one secret jealously. At last one day I hid in a dark corner and overheard the magic syllables. They were three in number. The Egyptian gave the pestle its instructions and then went off to the market. Well, the next day, he was busy again in the market, so I took the pestle, dressed it, pronounced the three syllables exactly as he had done, and ordered it to become a water carrier. It brought me the pitcher full, and then I said, Stop. Be a water carrier no more, but pestle as heretofore. But the thing would take no notice of me. It went on drawing water the whole time until at last the house was full of it. This was awkward. If Pancrates came back, he would be angry. I thought, and so it indeed turned out. I took an axe and cut the pestle in two. The result was that both halves took pitchers and fetched water. I had two water carriers instead of one. This was still going on when Pancrates appeared. He saw how things stood and turned the water carriers back into wood and then withdrew himself from me and went away, whither I knew not. 
And you can actually make a man out of a pestle to this day? Asked Dynamicus. Yes, I can do that, but it is only half the process. I cannot turn it back again to its original form. If once it became a water carrier, its activity would swamp the house. So, Egypt, huh? Yep, and second century, so pretty far back. Okay, but when did the traditional Jewish concept of the golem go to? I mean, wasn't Adam created from clay? So he was sort of a golem, yeah? True, but I guess that's the point, that things created by man are ostensibly infinitely less perfect than those made by God. The Hebrew concept of golems goes back about as far as the story by Lucian, basically to the beginning of the Common Era. It's possible it goes back further. We just don't have records is what you're saying, right? Exactly. The oldest thing I know about is writings in the Talmud dating from the 3rd century about a rabbi called Rava creating a man whom he sent to another rabbi, but who was unable to speak whatever message he was meant to give. Okay, so 1,700 years ago is pretty damn old. Old enough. So we definitely have a construct. Got to throw the D&D terminology when we can, folks. <laughs> yeah, a construct. But not really molded into human shape like a true golem, but dressed up and close enough in shape so that people perceived it as human-like. Yeah, and not to mention the human shape is convenient for chores, which seems to be what golems tend to be used for. Kind of slavery. Kind of. I mean, maybe that's why they always run amok. Who wants to do mindless chores all damn day long? No kidding. And we see it even more clearly in the modern instantiations like robots and AI going rogue. It's in your nature to destroy yourselves. <laughs> yeah, major drag, huh? I have detailed files on human anatomy. <laughs> Let's get a pizza. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, sorry. Must have been some malware somewhere. I've rebooted. I'm ready to go now. So what do you think the lessons are that we're meant to learn from these legends? Well, like we said, don't play God seems to have been the overriding theme. Yeah, I think so. And it may not have been intended, but creating a race of slaves is not okay. Yeah, slavery is like wrong no matter what the form. So the problem is when we enter sci-fi realm with computers and robots and whatnot. That's just the sci realm, Max. True, more and more so, but at some point we'll cross the threshold wherein the computers or computer brains or what have you become sentient. Then how we treat them matters more, right? I think so, yeah. If you have a mindless hunk of clay or a broom that you make sweep your house forever, that's one thing. But when your Roomba starts to be conscious, is it okay to use it in the same way? How would you know? That's the problem. But let's look at a Frankenstein. You mean Frankenstein. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to Mel Brooks. Uh, yeah, you mean Frankenstein's monster. Uh, I fell for one of the classic blunders. What, you got involved in a land war in Asia? <laughs> no, I... You went against a Sicilian when death was involved? Stop. You seem to be a decent fellow. I hate to kill you. You seem a decent fellow. I hate to die. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Seriously. Back on track. We're not going to do a Princess Bride review, so everybody gonna... <laughs> calm down. We're not going to do a We young... promise not to do the whole movie. We're not going to do a young Frankenstein review, so it's all good. Okay. So, right. Max, you were talking about Frankenstein. I was right? talking about Frankenstein. Frankenstein's monster. Uh, Is that a quote? <laughs> no, actually, that's my point. Thanks for reminding me. In Shelley's book, Dr. Frankenstein refers to his creation as a fiend and demon and other horrible names, but it's actually quite brilliant and very conversant. I think he might even speak multiple languages. Yeah, so, you know, going back to the enslavement point. Yeah, how Dr. Frankenstein treats his monster. For lack of a better word. 
in a lot of ways leads him down a path that inevitably leads to multiple murders and mayhem and whatnot. Uh, sure, blame the parents, nature versus nurture. I think we need another story. Right-o. Good gracious, cried Dorothy, shrinking back as far as the narrow path will let her. For standing within the narrow chamber of rock was the form of a man, or at least it seemed like a man in the dim light. He was only about as tall as Dorothy herself, and his body was round as a ball and made out of burnished copper. Also, his head and limbs were copper, and these were joined or hinged to his body in a peculiar way, with metal caps over the joints, like the armor worn by knights in days of old. He stood perfectly still, and where the light struck upon his form, it glittered as if made of pure gold. Don't be frightened, called Melina from her perch. It isn't alive. I see it isn't, replied the girl, drawing a long breath. It is only made of copper, like the old kettle in the barnyard at home, continued the hen, turning her head first to one side and then the other, so that both her little round eyes could examine the object. Once, said Dorothy, I knew a man made out of tin was a woodman named Nick Chopper, but he was as alive as we are, because he was born a real man, and got his tin body a little at a time, first a leg, and then a finger, and then an ear, for the reason that he had so many accidents with his axe, and cut himself up in a very careless manner. But this copper man, continued Dorothy, looking at it with big eyes, is not alive at all, and I wonder what it was made for, and why it was locked up in this queer place. That is a mystery, remarked the hen, twisting her head to arrange her wing feathers with her bill. Dorothy stepped back inside the little room to get a back view of the copper man, and in this way discovered a printed card that hung between his shoulders, it being suspended from a small copper peg at the back of his neck. She unfastened this card and returned to the path, where the light was better, and sat herself down upon a slab of rock to read the printing. Well, I declare, gasped the yellow hen in amazement, If the copper man can do half of these things, he is a very wonderful machine. But I suppose it's all humbug, like so many other patented articles. We might wind him up, suggested Dorothy, and see what he'll do. Which shall I wind up first, she asked, looking again at the direction on the card. Number one, I should think, returned Belina. That makes him think, doesn't it? Yes, said Dorothy, and wound up number one under the left arm. I wonder what he is thinking about. I'll wind up his talk, and then perhaps he can tell us, said the girl. So she wound up number two, and immediately the clockwork man said, without moving any parts of his body except his lips, Good morning, little girl. Good morning, Mrs. Hen. The words sounded a little hoarse and creaky, and they were uttered all in the same tone, without any change of expression whatever. But both Dorothy and Belina understood them perfectly. And then being very curious, she asked, how did you come to be locked up in this place? It's a long story, replied the copper man, but I will tell it to you briefly. I was purchased from Smith and Tinker, my manufacturers by a cruel king of Ev, named Evaldo, who used to beat all his servants until they died. However, he was not able to kill me, because I was not alive, and one must first live in order to die so that all his beating did me no harm and really kept my copper body well polished. The cruel king had a lovely wife and ten beautiful children, five boys and five girls, but in a fit of anger he sold them all to the gnome king, who by means of his magic arts changed them all into other forms and put them in his underground palace to ornament the rooms. 
Afterwards, the king of Ev regretted his wicked action and tried to get his wife and children away from the gnome king, but without avail. So in despair, he locked me up in this rock, threw the key into the ocean, and then jumped in after it and was drowned. How very dreadful, exclaimed Dorothy. It is indeed, said the machine. When I found myself in prison, I shouted for help until my voice ran down. And then I walked back and forth in this little room until my action ran down. And then I stood still and thought until my thoughts ran down. After that, I remembered nothing until you wound me up again. Wow, King of Aldo was... Kind of a bastard. Yeah, I was looking for a suitable word. Nothing too suitable. This is a family show. Indeed. I think that little excerpt from Asma Vaz really gets into the horror of a thinking machine who, because it's at least arguably not alive, is treated like garbage. Yeah, the part where the king beat his servants too much, but the TikTok man couldn't die, so he just kept going. Pretty awful. This is exactly how you get a construct to rebel and run amok. Textbook. So I think what we learned here today is that it might be okay to play God, maybe just a little bit. Arguably, but if you do, treat your creations with dignity and respect. Seems only fair, man. I think that's going to do it for us today, lovely listeners. Yeah. Guys, thanks for joining us. Gals, thanks for joining us. Dogs, thanks for joining us. Cats, (laughs) thanks for joining us. Everybody that listened, we thank you so much. And if you like our little podcast... Even a tiny little bit. Please go to Apple Podcasts. Give us a five-star review. Tell your friends, enemies, frenemies. Tell them all. And visit our website at nightmarespodcast.net. And follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Our theme music, as always, is Calliope's Call by the beautiful and talented Teresa Joy. Find her at Viobrite, V-I-O-B-R-I-T-E, on both Facebook and the Gram. So until next time, sweet dreams. <laughs>